Section 21 of A History of the Four Georges in Four Volumes, Volume 2 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 40 Canada. We have seen that when the young Duke of Cumberland, after the Battle of Culloden, was earning his right to the title of butcher, one English officer at least had the courage to protest by his actions against the atrocities of the English general. That soldier was James Wolfe, then a young lieutenant colonel who had served his apprenticeship to arms in the Low Country in the War of the Austrian Succession and earned by his courage and his abilities an honorable name. He was destined to make that name famous by the part he was to play in the events that were taking place in Canada. The red-haired, unattractive soldier whose cold and almost repellent manner concealed some of the highest qualities was fated to do as much for the glory of the English Empire in one part of the world as Clive in another. But there could hardly be two men more different than Clive and Wolfe. The one was always an adventurer, a gentleman adventurer indeed, and a brilliant specimen of the class, but an adventurer still, and with some of the worst vices of his kind. Wolfe, on the contrary, resembled more the better men among those Puritan soldiers who rallied around the name of Cromwell and battled beneath the standards of Monk. He cherished an austere ideal of public and private virtue. The sweet, simple gravity of the man's nature lives for us very vividly in the portrait Thackeray draws of him in the pages of the Virginians, where so many of the famous figures of the crowded last-century world seem to take bodily shape again and live and move around us. From the end of the fifteenth century, when John and Sebastian Capet discovered Canada, France considered that portion of the New World as her own. Early in the sixteenth century, a French expedition under Verrazzani formed a settlement named New France, and eleven years later the Breton Jacques Cartier ascended the St. Lawrence as far as the site of Montreal. The first permanent settlement was made in 1608, when Quebec was founded. From that time Quebec seems like the prize for which English and French arms are to strive. Canada was taken by the English in 1629, only to be restored in 1632, but when more than a century later France and England were newly at war, the serious and final struggle for the possession of Canada took place. The French settlements in America were called Canada and Louisiana. The one comprehended the basin of the St. Lawrence River and the Great Lakes, with a vast extent of territory west and north to the Pacific and Arctic Oceans. It was, as has been happily said, a convenient maxim in those days of our colonization that whoever possessed the coast had a right to call the inland territory as far as from sea to sea. While this gave England its boundaries from north to south, it left from east to west open to French fancy and French ambition. Louisiana was a term which covered in English eyes only the Mississippi mouths and a few stations along the Mississippi and Ohio valleys. In French minds, the term extended to all the territory, bounded to the north by Canada and to the south by Mexico, and stretching from the Alleghanies to the Pacific. 
the French settlements in Canada were administered very much upon the same happy-go-lucky system as that which prevailed in France at home under the beneficent influence of the old order, and which at home was slowly and surely preparing the way for the French Revolution. The ministers in Paris governed the colonies through governors who were supreme in their own districts, but who possessed no power whatever of initiating any laws for the people they swayed. The English colonies were very different from those of the French. Founded in the early days of religious persecution by men too strong-minded to accept tyranny or to make composition with their consciences, the new colonies of Englishmen in America had thriven in accordance with the antique spirit of independence which had called them into existence. The colonists were a hardy, stubborn, and high-minded people, well fitted to battle with the elements and the Indians, and to preserve under new conditions the austere standard of morality which led them to look for liberty across the sea. The creed which they professed endowed them with the capacity for self-government and taught them the arts of administration and the polity of free states. The English colonies, as they throve and extended, were not without their faults. The faith which their founders professed was a gloomy faith and left its mark in gloom upon the characters of the people and the tenors of their laws. The ironside quality of their creed showed itself in the cruelties with which they visited the Indians. The severity of their tenets was felt by all who could not readily adapt themselves to the adamantine ethics of men of the type of Endicott and Mather. There was not wanting, too, a spirit of lawlessness in the English America, curiously in contrast with the law-abiding character of the nonconformist colonizations. Along the seaboard, wild pirates nestled, skimmers of the seas of the most daring type, worthy brethren of the kids, the blackbeards, and the teaches, terrors of the merchantmen and the well-disposed immigrant. But in spite of the sternness of the law-abiding and the savageness of the lawless portions of the English settlements, they contrasted favorably in every way with the settlements which were nominally French and the centers of colonization which hoisted the French flag. After a long stretch of threatened hostilities, the pinch came at last in 1753, when the two nations met on the banks of the Ohio. The meeting meant one of the greatest and most momentous series of wars in the century. French soldiers invaded all the settlements of the Ohio Company and drove the settlers out. The governor of Virginia sent an ambassador to the French officer commanding on the Ohio and chose as his ambassador a young Virginian gentleman, then absolutely unknown except to the small circle of his personal friends, but destined to become one of the most famous and most deservedly famous men in history. Young Mr. George Washington bore Governor Dinwiddie's message over five hundred miles through the wilderness at the peril of his life. That expedition, says Irving, may be considered the foundation of his fortunes. From that moment he was the rising hope of Virginia. The French commander informed the young envoy that he proposed to hold Ohio and drive the English out. Back went George Washington through the wilderness again with this discouraging reply. After that, hostilities were inevitable. 
The next year, Washington, then lieutenant-colonel, led a small force to the frontier and fired the first shot against the enemy. It is curious to think of all the results that followed from that first shot. The fall of the French colonies in America, the establishment of the American Republic, the French Revolution, all may, by the simplest process of causation, be traced back to the first shot fired by Washington's command against a petty officer on the frontier. That shot echoes on the plains of Abraham, at Lexington and Bunker's Hill, at the taking of the Bastille, and with the whiff of grape-shot we may hear it at Waterloo and in the autumn horrors of the coup d'etat. France had long been ambitious of extending the domain of her colonial empire in America. Her aim was to secure for herself the Mississippi and Ohio valleys. Securing these meant many things to France. It meant the connection of her Mexican colonies with Canada. But it meant much more than this. It meant serious annoyance to England, serious limitation to English commerce. It would make the Allegheny Mountains the western limits of the English colonies, hamper the English trade with the Indians, and expose to French attack the English on the north, south, and west. In this year, 1754, therefore, she deliberately drove the English out of West Pennsylvania and set up her staff there by building Fort Duquesne to command the Ohio Valley. At that time, the chief British commander in America was General Braddock, a joyous, rollicking soldier of the old-fashioned type, rather popular in London as a good companion and good fellow, who loved his glass with a more than merely convivial enthusiasm. But he was not the sort of man who was fitted to fight the French just then and there. In the open field and under ordinary conditions he might have done well enough. But the war with France in the American colonies was not pursued under ordinary conditions. It was fought on the lines of Indian warfare, with murderous Indian allies, against whom the jolly general of the London Tables and the St. James Club was wholly unfitted to cope. Though he had been warned by Sir P. K. Halkett, who knew the danger, Braddock actually insisted upon advancing with astonishing recklessness against Fort Duquesne as if he were marching at the head of an invincible force to the easiest possible success. The result of his heedlessness is one of the grimmest spots in English colonial history. Braddock's forces were cut to pieces. Very few of his stout thousand escaped to spread horror through the English colonies by the news of their misfortunes. The banner of the leopard had gone down indeed before the white coats and the silver lilies of France, and the painted fantasies of Indian braves and sachems. The fair hair of English soldiers graced the wigwams of the wild and remorseless red man, and it seemed for the moment as if the fighting power of England had gone. But indeed, English fighting power was made of sterner stuff. The fact is, perhaps, never more happily exemplified than in the very story of the dying Braddock himself. As he was carried away bleeding to his death from that fatal ambuscade, something of the hero animated and exalted the spirit of that drink-hardy and foolhardy soldier. I must do better another time, he is reported to have said, and it would not be easy to say with what gallanter words a stout soldier could go to his account. Against such a spirit as that which animated the dying Braddock, the soldiers of France were not destined to triumph. 
the last of the gracchi said mirabeau when dying flung dust to heaven and from that dust sprang marius braddock promising himself to do better next time spoke not indeed for himself but for his nation the next time came in its due season but the man who did better who carried that banner of the leopard high over the lilies was not braddock but james wolfe england thirsted for revenge the years came and the years went and at last they brought the hour and the man an elaborate campaign in seventeen fifty nine had been prepared by which amherst coming by lake george ticonderoga and lake champlain prideaux and johnson coming by fort niagara lake ontario and montreal and wolfe coming by the st lawrence river were to unite in attacking quebec but the first two divisions of the whole force were unable to make the connection in the due time and to wolfe's command alone was given the honor of assailing quebec he advanced up the st lawrence with some seven thousand men and the fleet under admiral saunders and encamped on the island of st orleans in the st lawrence river some eight miles from quebec the whole world perhaps hardly knows a scene more picturesque whether looked at from above or from below from the rock or from the river than that which is given by the city of quebec at some places the bold mass of rock and clay descends almost sheer to the lower level and the river shore one can see that splendid heap of rock and clay from the distant falls of montmorency standing out as on the acropolis of athens or as acrocorinth may be seen from some far-off point of view the newer part of the city and the fortifications are perched high upon the great mound or mass of clay and rock which looks over the confluence of a mighty river and a great stream the lower and older town creeps and straggles along the base of the rock and by the edges of the river here are the old market-places the quaint old streets the ancient wharves the crumbling houses the narrow lanes the curious inlets of past generations and the crude shanties of yesterday and the day before yesterday from this lower level broad roads now wind up to what would be called the better part of the city the region of the hotels and the clubs and the official buildings and the fashionable residences but until lately these roads passed under the ancient gateways of the city gateways that reminded one of the gate of calais and brought back suggestions of hogarth's famous picture in more recent years however the restless spirit of modern improvement has invaded even quebec and all or nearly all the ancient gateways the gateways of the days of wolfe have bowed to the fate of temple bar yet even to-day the traveller in canada who stands upon that height may vividly recall the scene that lay before the eyes of wolfe during that memorable campaign wolfe made an attempt to carry a battery above the montmorency mouth but failed and was repulsed with considerable loss he then cast about him if it were possible to attack the town from the heights of abraham on the southern side it seemed on the face of it an impossibility how was it possible for the attacking force to make its way unseen by the french up the precipitous cliffs to the heights of abraham luckily there was a young man in wolfe's army a lieutenant mcculloch who had been held prisoner in quebec in seventeen fifty six with a view to future possibilities he employed his time in surveying the cliffs and he thought that he had discovered a particular spot 
where the steep hills might be successfully scaled by an attacking force. He now communicated this to Wolfe. Indeed, the idea of attack in this way seems to have been suggested by him, and on the memorable September night the attempt was made. Who has not heard, who has not been touched and thrilled by the story of Wolfe, while being rowed across the spreading waters of the St. Lawrence to the cove where the attempt was to be made, repeating in low tones to his officers near him Gray's elegy in a country churchyard. Who does not remember Wolfe's famous saying that he would rather have written the elegy than take Quebec? It is a fine saying, akin to that of Caesar when he swore that he would rather be the first man in an obscure Italian village than the second man in Rome. We may perhaps take the liberty of questioning the absolute accuracy of either saying. In Caesar's case, he was no doubt sufficiently conscious that he was going to be the first man in Rome. In Wolfe's case, we may well believe that his exquisite tribute to literature and to the most charming work of one of the most charming men of letters then alive was not meant very seriously. He was a soldier. Quebec was his duty. Quebec was to be his fame. But it is one of those sayings that live forever, and the mere thought of it at once calls up two widely different pictures pictures of places in two widely different parts of the world. One shows the shining, swelling St. Lawrence River in the dead hour of night, and those slowly moving boats of hushed heroes creeping across the waters to where the mighty Quebec hills gloomed hugely out. The other is of that quiet churchyard in England at Stoke Pogus near Slow, where pilgrims from many parts of the world still wander through the pleasant Buckinghamshire fields, to stand where Gray conceived his elegy. Wolfe carried out his plan to perfection. Day was dawning as the majority of his forces formed upon the heights of Abraham. It was six in the morning before Montcalm's irregulars were upon the field, and nine o'clock before the French army was in position for action. At ten o'clock the battle began. It did not last very long. Whether the French were utterly disheartened or not by the appearance so unexpectedly of the English on the ground which they had deemed unassailable, certain it is that they made a poor fight of it. Though the French forces amounted to nearly double the English strength, the whole battle from the first French advance to their utter rout and flight did not last a quarter of an hour. It was one of the sharpest and the strangest battles in history. Both sides lost their generals. Montcalm was killed. Wolfe, charging gallantly at the head of his men, fell mortally wounded. The wild cry, they run, echoed in his dying ears. He seemed to recover a kind of alertness at the sound, and shaking himself from his deadly stupor, asked, Who run? We can imagine the momentary trepidation of that gallant heart, could it be his outnumbered followers? In a moment he was reassured. It was the enemy who fled. With his last breath he gave some strategical orders and then fell back. God be praised, I die in peace, he said, and so passed away. The time may perhaps come when the great game of war will no longer stir the pulses and men will no longer feel that they die in peace after the bloody defeat of their enemies. But so long as the pulses of men's hearts do answer to any martial music, so long men will say of Wolfe that he died well, as became a soldier, a hero, and a gentleman. He sleeps in Greenwich Church. The pride of England's colonial empire might find new stimulus 
in the way in which the memory of one of the most brilliant scenes in the story of england's career is kept green in quebec the traveller standing on dufferin terrace to-day may in his mind's eye see wolfe crossing the stream on his perilous expedition may in his mind's eye hear him reciting to his officers those lines from gray's elegy and telling them that he would rather have written such verses than be sure of taking quebec his monument is near to the promenade on dufran terrace his monument which a rare event in war is the monument also of his rival the french commander montcalm killed in the hour of defeat as wolfe was at the moment of victory quebec itself seems to illustrate in its own progress and its own history the moral of that common monument quebec is as loyal to the british crown as victoria or as the channel islands but it is still in great part an old-fashioned french city the france that survives there and all through the province is not the france of to-day but the france of before the great revolution the stranger seeking his way through the streets had better in most cases question the first crossing sweeper he meets in french and not in english the english residents are all expected to speak french but the english residents and the french live on terms of the most cordial fraternity little quarrels local quarrels of race and sect do unquestionably spring up here and there now and again but they are only like the disputes of churchmen and dissenters in an english city and they threaten no organic controversy england has great reason to be proud of quebec the english flag has a home on those heights which we have already said may challenge the world for bold picturesqueness and beauty End of chapter 40